Hey there, this is Andy Baker, and you're listening to the Baker's Dozen podcast, where I serve up analysis of current TV series from the perspective of a development executive and screenwriter, and I do so 13 bites at a time. This is Fetcast number five, where I deep dive into episode five of the Book of Boba Fett, or more accurately, episode one of season three of The Mandalorian, Return of The Mandalorian. Given that we actually didn't get a lot of, or any really, Boba Fett this week, I don't see the point or purpose to uh, a lot of preamble here. We're just going to jump right in to number one, keeping an eye on the fact that this was The Mandalorian. This was not Boba Fett. And we got to treat it that way when we try to break it down. So this isn't going to be one big rant about, you know, why is Boba Fett not in this thing, blah, blah, blah. There's no point. We know what we got. And so let's look at what we got. One. So just a few thoughts on the fact that this wasn't an episode of the Book of Boba Fett. As I said before, this is the first episode of The Mandalorian Season 3, or maybe just a bit of a preamble setting a lot up. And we will talk later in this episode about all the things that they did set up. But uh, rapid fire, the things that this makes me think about, given that you get to the end, and I don't know about you, but certainly throughout a chunk of the episode, I was thinking, okay, are they going to dovetail these things together? And when are we going to get around to Boba Fett and the Mandalorian coming together? And then realized, oh my gosh, the episode is coming to an end and we haven't brought them together. Especially when you see the runtime is going to be over 50 minutes long and, and still it's just all Mandalorian. Anyway, to me, it just screams that the book of Boba Fett can't stand on its own. It needs the Mandalorian to come to some sort of satisfying conclusion. And as I understand it, this was meant to be a movie initially. The script was maybe written to, with that in mind. And given that it's six episodes of Boba Fett and one of the Mandalorian, it has the runtime of a long movie. And it feels to me like they really wanted to tell the story of uh, Boba Fett's redemption and rebirth with the Tuscans because they really don't seem to know what to do with the present day other than to say pikes are a problem and we need to deal with that problem. And it seems to me like they're just setting up a potential franchise that a group of bounty hunters led by Boba Fett and having Black Kersantan in there and maybe somebody like Cad Bane to go along with Fennec and the Mandalorian can drop in and out. Like that is setting up a Bad Batch kind of live action show that you could bring back periodically. But I don't know that they're getting enough positive feedback for that to be the case, but that could have been their goal going into it. Anyway, a lot of the present day stuff feels tacked on and an excuse to put together this house. It's a bit like if you saw the Squid Game, the whole cop story, apparently that Squid Game was written as a feature. They knew they had to expand it into a TV show. And so they added the cop aspect to it later on. And that's why it felt tacked on. And I think that's part of why we're seeing this present day storyline feeling unsubstantial. Anyway, we also have this element here that the Mandalorian is in this series, in this episode, perhaps at least it feels to me like they're just trying to get people to watch this show. 
So anyone who really liked Mandalorian season one and kind of tuned out of Book of Boba Fett, whether they watched it at all or only watched a couple and then decided, eh, this isn't as good. I want baby Grogu. But um, that they have to watch this show now to get all the Mandalorian material. And yeah, it's a spinoff show. And so, yeah, the Mandalorian, you know, you, you always bank on the profitable character. And we would have said a long time ago, or not that long ago, actually, Boba Fett was the popular character, but now it's the Mandalorian, hands down. And so you throw him in here so that people end up coming across and watching it and uh, maybe sticking around and giving them a reason to perhaps bring it back somewhere down the line. I frankly don't think that'll happen. I don't know that they have so much invested in it that they really need to. And frankly, I don't know about you, but I have no intention of watching it if they do. But uh, I will watch The Mandalorian, which is why this episode was good. But I get ahead of myself. Let's move on. Dude. The usefulness of extreme violence. So far in the Book of Boba Fett, we have seen uh, Boba Fett beat up the speeder gang, but nobody died in that sequence. And yeah, we got little bits and pieces of violence during the whole train sequence. He then gunned down the speeder gang from the Razor Crest, but that's not intimate. So what Mando did in this opening sequence was... It was so up close and personal with the Darksaber. Like, people are getting sliced in half. And uh, just really up the ante, it, it made it very clear, just such a stark difference. Like, Boba Fett's supposed to be like this, and he hasn't been. And then suddenly we have it thrown in our face, this is what you've been missing. And it is just such a visceral reminder of just how disappointing the book of Boba Fett is. But what I do find interesting is that it, one of the things that you end up doing in a show is creating and establishing what is possible. And we've gotten bits and pieces of it so far, but this was loud and clear a message that this is the kind of violence that can exist in this world and in this show. And it seems to me to give permission to have Boba Fett do this over the next couple of episodes to prepare us for that, because we've gotten kinder, gentler Boba Fett, and we're going to need some up close and personal fighting just to reestablish his credibility as a badass character. And you can't give it all to Black Kersantan and to Mando and to Fennec like Boba Fett needs to step up. And so for the next couple of episodes, Mando has set the bar and Boba Fett is going to have to meet it or clear it over these next couple of episodes because he's going to be fighting the Pikes. And what is he going to do? How is he going to do it? And, and he didn't tell us, Mando just told us. It's going to be in-your-face, intimate violence. At least that's the possibility. And if they don't go down that path, it's just going to make the gap between Mando and Boba Fett even wider. And boy, would that be a misstep. So I, I have faith that we're going to have Boba Fett getting into it over the next couple of episodes, but let's hope so. Three. The opening shows us everything that Boba Fett as a show is missing. We got menace. We got a cool catchphrase. Bring him in warm or bring you in cold. We see him being honorable on his way out, but it is also edged with some intimidation. He's very casually carrying a severed head. And again, that's countered with some honorable activity where he says he doesn't have any right to the credits that are in the back office and that they can take them, that he would appreciate it if he, they would let him pass. 
And it's this balance of duty and honor and violence and intimidation. And then you throw in humor that he's in the elevator and that alien is looking over at him. I think I might know what's in that bag and that's troubling, but I'm not going to look too closely because uh, I'm scared of this guy. And then on his way out, Mando says, I'd put that on ice. It's just very casual, confident humor, which is just sorely missing from Book of Boba Fett. And so we're five minutes into this thing and we're already forgetting Book of Boba Fett. It's like The Mandalorian is a great show. This is what I want to be watching. This is what I wish The Book of Boba Fett was and hasn't been. And it's just so self-assured. It is just so confident in itself and it just works. Every bit of it works. And yeah, this is what we've been missing. Four. The blueprint for The Mandalorian season three. A lot of what we got in this episode, which was, even though it was a great and fun episode of The Mandalorian, is really just a bizarre yin-yang episode split right in half of the first half being the whole Mandalorian storyline about the Darksaber and Mandalorian society and all of that. And literally enshrouded in shadows and inside and dark and in space and this ring world. And then the second half couldn't be brighter by contrast. They're on Tatooine and desert planet, two suns. And so it's so bright. And that whole sequence is all about a ship and about humor. And it, it, again, very stark contrast, but I'll dig into that more later. But so much of this episode was about establishing what Mandalorian season three is going to be all about. We get the dark saber, we get the Mandalorian prophecy from 10,000 years ago. That's what Mando season three has got to be about. We hear about one warrior defeating 20. So that sets us up for big battles in season three of the Mandalorian, because you know, that storyline is going to have to dominate things. We hear about falling into the hands that are undeserving, a curse on the nation, and some of that. And I guess we're probably going to be filling in some of the gaps from the Clone Wars and Rebels about how Sabine ended up giving the Darksaber. And we end up, then the Empire shows up and blows everything up. Obviously, we saw that, but you can fill in those gaps in The Mandalorian Season 3. And we're going to have to, the fact that it's going to fall into hands that are undeserving is that the past or is that coming up? It almost needs to happen. We need to see that version of it. Once you articulate it, things, those things need to happen. You can't bring something up and then avoid it altogether. Once it's mentioned, it becomes a thing. So you don't mention it unless you're going to do it. And then the idea of that someday that they'll return to their home world. And obviously that's where the Mandalorian has to go to wash away his sin of having taken his helmet off. And so all of that is our blueprint for the Mandalorian season three. That's what he's going to have to work through while involving Grogu. But we'll get into that more in just a little bit. Five. More Mandalorian season three. So we hear about Moff Gideon, that he should be executed for his crimes. And of course, the armorer ends up saying, we shall see. And when somebody says we shall see, it means it's not going to happen. That's kind of, that's such a parent line. Like when a kid says, oh, can we go to the amusement park and then go to a movie and then have a sleepover with my friend? We shall see. That means it's not going to happen. So there's going to be either 
political shenanigans if they want to go down that route and get Moff Gideon out. But more likely, some sort of cool breakout sequence, Moff Gideon gets back out into the world. And it's Giancarlo Esposito, so very clearly we want to see more of him because if you haven't seen Breaking Bad, see Breaking Bad and see anything that Giancarlo Esposito is in. He's amazing, but uh, so we're going to get more of him. We also hear about the Mythosaur heralding a new age. And is that an actual Mythosaur? Is that just the reference to the whoever the ruler of Mandalorian is as being the Mythosaur? It's going to be really hard for them to resist actually bringing back a Mythosaur. Like if you can clone people, you can find some DNA and clone yourself a Mythosaur, right? Apparently it only exists in legends. And I did a little bit of reading in the Wikipedia about, okay, so that they were when the Mandalorians were first establishing themselves in Mandalore. They went around killing these things. But once you say it exists only in legend, not anymore, of course, it's got to come into reality. So season three, if you can animate a crate dragon, maybe tweak some of the skin on that thing. And suddenly you got yourself a mythosaur. We're going to see one people. And then of course, baby Yoda chainmail. As soon as you say baby Yoda chainmail, what do you know? He's got to see battle. He's got to, and he's got to take a shot into the chest into that chain mail. It's got to get stabbed a lot like Frodo. Remember Frodo with his mithril chain mail vest thing where he should have died and people reacted like they, they turned that thing into a whole long slow-mo thing and everyone's yelling with the distorted voices and he's falling and with the big wide eyes and we're going to get all of that with baby Yoda. We're going to just catch our breath like, oh no, baby Yoda. And of course he's got the chain mail. They'll wait till a time they think that we've forgotten and anyone who didn't actually watch this episode of the Book of Boba Fett wouldn't even know he had it. Oh, they'll make a thing of it when the Mandalorian, when Din ends up giving it to Baby Yoda. But anyway, it's just one of those things like, okay, you deliver the chain mail. He's going to have the chain mail. He's going to get in trouble. Obviously he is going to end up having to, you can fill in the gaps, right? You, you can't stay with the Jedi and in your training and be under that kind of threat probably, or maybe they are under that kind of threat and the Mandalorian just happens to be there and be able to grab him and get him out of there. But anyway, baby Yoda has got to take a shot right into that chain mail. And yeah, it's going to be impossibly cute that he has it on, but he's, uh, baby Yoda's going to be in some mortal peril where he's going to be physically engaging other people, not just doing his little force hands thing. It's going to go to a place where they're fighting through and he's going to take a shot, either stabbed or hit with a laser shot, but more likely it's going to be something physical because it's chainmail, and we're going to hate it, but we're going to love it because clearly the Mandalorian can see it coming and knows that he needs to order up some chain mail rather than anything else with that spear of Beskar. Six. Six. Even more Mandalorian season three. So we heard that line persistence without insight will lead to the same outcome. It's a variation on, I don't know if it's apocryphal, the whole Einstein definition of insanity being doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different outcome. But this line, they emphasize it so much like this. We're going to hear that line again. Mando is going to have to learn and grow. And so that's going to be one of the themes of season three that he's going to have to let go of his attachment to Grogu or think that he needs to. Meanwhile, Grogu is being told that he needs to let go of these attachments, but we're going to probably do a twist on that and learn that uh, they are stronger together. 
that the attachment actually creates a power that they're willing to sacrifice themselves for the other. That's where this power comes from. And so I'm curious to see how that's going to play out in Mando season three. And, and then that last little bit where they said that uh, he needs to get, uh, Mando needs to get redeemed in the living waters beneath the mines of Mandalore. And they might as well just like, that's a, a video game quest right there. It's okay. I need to prepare myself to go to Mandalore, but we know because Mando told us that the mines have all been destroyed. So he's going to have to find his way down in there and there's going to be problems on the planet, probably problems even getting there. Like that's going to be the big quest is that ultimately he's going to end up having to be in the mines of Mandalore and find his way in there and get down to these living waters, whatever that means, living waters. Is there something living in there? But you're going to have Mando going there. He's going to have some people with him. Grogu is going to be there with him. Who else? Bo-Katan. We're going to have to populate that place since the place is a wasteland, but there's going to probably, we'll end up finding out that some people survived and Anyway, because you can't just have the three members of their little cabal and we shall see anyway, but that is the big quest of season three, going to the waters, the living waters beneath the mines of Mandalore. Seven. Large scale versus small scale. I think we all probably enjoyed the history lesson about Mandalore because it was cool. It was visual. And it struck me while we were watching that it was such a reminder that everything on Tatooine in the book of Boba Fett seems really small by comparison, the world, the story, all of it. We're hearing about in this flashback, the night of a thousand tears, we get the whole Terminator visual homage. Planets are blown up in the Star Wars universe. The stakes are bigger. The visuals are bigger. When we get that shot of all those ships over the planet of Mandalore, dropping their bombs, things blowing up, we get a ring world in this episode. Mando goes to places and isn't stuck on a desert planet. It just reminds us that we don't have to be on Tatooine all the time. Again, this, the contrast could not be more stark, just how interesting the Mandalorian is as a show and as a world of the story, as opposed to the book of Boba Fett, which just seems so very small. And I know that's intentional that they were trying to be, tell an intimate story. And I have said before, I really liked the Tusken Raider part of the story, but I also think that they betrayed that storyline. And I think they abandoned it before it became what it could have become. And the present day storyline on Tatooine, we just want him to just resolve the whole Pike thing and move on. We just don't care enough. And so when the Mandalorian, by contrast, is going to places, we seeing a ring world, seeing this whole history and prophecy and all of this connected to Mandalore, it is suddenly just a strong reminder. That's how you set up a show in a galaxy where you can planet hop staying on a planet as essentially boring as Tatooine, even though obviously a lot goes down there in the overall Star Wars franchise. We want to go places. We want to see things. We want spaceships. We want the space opera aspect of it, not be stuck watching Boba Fett try to run a criminal enterprise on Tatooine. So Anyway, large scale, small scale. We like large scale. That's what we want from space. And they've just gone way too small with the Book of Boba Fett. So 
Give me more Mandalorian, less Boba Fett. Eight. Nerfing the Darksaber. I'm always interested when you introduce uh, a weapon like the Darksaber. It's so overpowered. It's so incredibly cool and interesting, and it should be able to cut through anything. And so they have to find some way to deal with that. And they came up with a, what I felt was a reasonable solution to it, that uh, he's fighting against the blade. He can't use it well because it gets heavier with each move because he is distracted or not focused, even though he says he's focused that there's, you have to focus on your opponent, not the swinging of the blade, that there's something metaphysical about controlling a lightsaber slash darksaber. And it also sets in motion the, again, video game quest aspect of he's got to invest in getting better at using this weapon. And it's going to be like the equivalent of Luke when he had that helmet on in the original movie and Obi-Wan is teaching him about the force and he's got to not be able to see things and he's got to be able to feel what's moving around him so that he can block their laser blasts. That is essentially what the Mandalorian is going to have to tap into and probably makes sense. It dovetails with the, you know, Grogu being uh, a Jedi that the Mandalorian being so connected to him needs to tap into the force and understand how the force works as a contrast to his very rigid religious beliefs where he's got to learn to just let go and be able to be one with the dark saber and and it's going to be connected to grogu and that grogu will be in danger and you're going to have the mandalorian being able to see and feel beyond himself because he's thinking about somebody else not thinking about himself or the dark saber or fighting, he is trying to help Grogu, which will allow him to wield the weapon. And again, that's going to be an arc over time where he learns how to use this thing. And it'll be interesting to see what they do with that. If ultimately he is going to rule Mandalore, or if he is going to give it to somebody who can rule it better, obviously he has to lose a battle for that to happen. Anyway, we'll be fascinated to see how that plays out, but it's definitely going to be an arc and there's character arcs and there's other arcs that go along with it. And for the Mandalorian learning how to use this overpowered weapon and have some halting steps along the way where he can do something with it, but he doesn't have an edge in every single battle he's going into because we just don't know in every fight exactly how good he's going to be at that point. He's learning and growing, but he's going to face some intimidating opposition where, uh, you know, the, his ability to control the dark saber is going to betray him until obviously he gets to a point where he needs to, we'll get glimpses of how good he can be with it when Grogu's in danger, but it'll culminate in something big, presumably on Mandalore, where he uses the dark saber to accomplish something important and great, which establishes him as a potential or the leader of the Mandalorians. Nine. The duel. It seems absurd, as everyone is pointing out online right now, that the Mandalorian, that the, these three, Abyssla and the Mandalorian and the armor, that th there's only three of them left. And why would you have this duel, which could be to the death? And why would the armor agree to that? I understand they're fighting over something with very big stakes, 
But setting aside how absurd it is when your numbers are so small that you would get into this, clearly this is ritualistic. The word creed is brought up many times that this is what they must do. It's a very formal way to go about resolving differences over something as big as the Darksaber. But clearly built into this is the need to do the whole helmet check at the end. That's how these things end every time. Have you ever removed your helmet? No. Have you ever removed your helmet? No. This is part of it. Mando knows that going in. So he knows that one of two things is going to happen. He's going to die in this fight or he is going to be outed for having taken his helmet off. So why even get into this thing in the first place? Do everything you can to avoid it. And maybe he couldn't and he got stuck, but he certainly didn't seem to be in, have any interest in backing down or he could have turned to the armor and said, this is probably not the smartest thing in the world to do, but maybe he was caught up in the ritualistic aspect of it. But it just seems like the kind of thing that Mando would have avoided because he knows that he's going to get outed at the end of it. And you could maybe make the argument that he wanted to confess, like this is weighing on him heavily now that he's around people who would hold it against him and he needed to ultimately have it come out. But that aside, he knew that this was coming. He got himself in this situation and it was only going to end one way if he didn't die, which was him being kicked out. And I'm surprised that he didn't know how one can redeem oneself. That would seem to be a built-in part of your religious teachings, but we'll ignore that for the moment. But uh, it just struck me. So not only was it absurd that they fought at all, but that Mando allowed himself to get stuck in that corner because it was going to end badly. Ten. Humor right after the duel. The humor that we experienced after the duel, like I said earlier, the episode seems to be split in half. And we go from this very, very dark, heavy, intense moment to him going to get on a ship. And we have the trope of unloading of all of the weapons. We've seen it in other things. The one that came to my mind was Police Academy from way back when. It's a mildly funny trope because obviously the Mandalorian is heavily armed and he has to go through that whole sequence, but it works because it's this long stretched out bit that after such a heavy sequence is telling us everything's going to be fine, that all will be well. We needed to undercut the seriousness of the, his current predicament and balance out the tone of things. And again, as I said before, Boba Fett tends to be pretty humorless with Boba Fett saying, don't push my buttons after the whole sequence with the Sarlacc pit. It always feels forced with Boba. It just feels natural, good, strong, and funny when it's the Mandalorian. And then you throw in Pelimato, her humor, and we get the whole extended ship sequence. She's used to talking about Grogu being part of a petting zoo. Amy Sedaris, frantic energy. I can't say that I 100% like it all the time, but she is very funny. And all the stuff about Jawas being furry, and we get little things like Mando getting frustrated with the droid and his inability to put the light where he wants it. That references to things being Jawa new and all this gibberish sci-fi technology. It's really just seeing these two banter and play off of each other. Really not a lot happens. He gets a ship. That's what happens. And 
you know, it's full of Easter eggs. We get Beggar's Canyon and Womp Rats and the Pod Race course, and it is not narratively important, but totally important. And it just resets the vibe and feel after all of the heavy stuff with the Mandalorians and what um, Mando is going to have to face in season three of the Mandalorian. So a jarring contrast, but all of the humor helps make it work. By the way, just a small little detail. The simple fact that Pelimato says that she has never left Tatooine, by now we know what that means, right? She has to leave Tatooine in season three of The Mandalorian. It's got to happen, whether that's in this souped up Naboo fighter or some other way. She's made a promise to us, or the show has made a promise to us, that she ultimately is going to have to leave Tatooine. 11. The Humanity of Mando. Back when, the earlier in the season, when Boba Fett was with the Tuscans and he spent the time with the Tuscan kid, I thought for a little while that the Tuscan boy was going to become Boba Fett's Grogu, that uh, this was going to be someone for uh, Boba Fett to care about. And it gets a little bit of that. At first, I was like, I don't want that to happen. I don't want to replicate a formula. But given what has happened since then and how they handled that story, actually had gone down that path. We certainly got reminded this episode that the Mandalorian, we get that moment where he is on the starship and the Rodian child is looking over the back of the chair and it's borrowing on, again, that's a trope as well, the little kid on public transportation looking over the back of the seat and making eyes at somebody. It's a little different because it's a Greedo kind of kid. And it's just a reminder that the Mando has heart. And we saw that throughout seasons one and two and his connection to Grogu. And obviously that's being evoked all over the place with the bandana being tied in the shape of a Grogu head. And it just, again, it's a stark reminder that they're really, for all of Boba Fett going around and trying to make things better and having his little group of cyborg buddies and being nice to Black Chrysanthemum after he tried to kill him, it's not the same. The humanity that Mando has gives the show its heart. And the Book of Boba Fett had its opportunity with the Tuscans and then wiped them out killed the kid, killed the woman, didn't actually give us any sort of closure on that, which was wrong, if you ask me. I still don't get it. I'm probably never going to stop complaining about it when it comes to this show. Anyway, again, this was a reminder. Mando in his helmet can emote more love, care, affection, and heart than Boba Fett can with his helmet off. Twelve. Some small stuff. Let's just start with the music. My son plays piano and has a really good ear for music. And just immediately, right out of the gate, was like, ooh, that's nice. Because they mixed the Book of Boba Fett and Mandalorian themes together in the intro. And that was very cool. Next thing. Why don't Mandalorians carry around canisters of that healing spray? It seems like it's really helpful. If it can do this to a dark saber injury, 
wouldn't it be really handy for any time you get blasted or hurt? Carry a canister of this stuff. It would make life a lot easier. Next thing, we heard the line, solidarity and loyalty are the way. And clearly that's going to have to come in later. It's going to be another season three Mandalorian theme, I imagine. But, uh, he's now on his own and alone, and he's been kicked out. The Mandalorian was countering the armor's point that Jedi can't have attachments. And that contrasts heavily with the Mandalorian creed that there's going to have to be some sort of middle ground and that solidarity and loyalty, it's going to be something that exists between Grogu and Mando that I guess technically shouldn't be there. But you're also going to see it happening, I imagine, with even like the armor and Bislu, where the ultimately solidarity and loyalty are going to have to play a key role in overcoming whatever the season three issues are with the antagonists for the Mandalorian. Next, we get a little line in the second half of this episode where there not a lot happens narratively, but we did hear from Pelimato about the pikes, about how everything has gone to hell on Tatooine since they started moving spice through the system. And so we now get a piece here where Mando helping is going to make things better for Peli and others. Uh, it's a reminder of what's going to get solved or resolved when the Mandalorian and Fennec and Boba Fett and Black Crescenton and anyone else they drum up when they take on the pikes. It's not just about the return to the delicate balance of power between the groups that are controlling Mos Eisley. It's about making things better for people all over Tatooine, including people who Mandalorian is personally connected to, like Palimato. And finally, everyone's saying it's obvious, but gosh, it's fun. The fact that they're going to have Grogu in that little bucket seat meant for droids with that little bubble. Seeing Grogu sitting in that thing with his chain mail on, probably holding that little silver ball. Like, who, who doesn't love that? I just chuckle thinking about it. And not to be uh, a downer, but like nothing like that exists in the Book of Boba Fett. You can't replicate that kind of borderline miraculous invention of this character of Baby Yoda. But man, it's just the gift that keeps on giving. And gosh, the Book of Boba Fett would have benefited from something, if not similar. They really needed to think through, like, why are people going to want to watch this thing? What makes it cool? What makes it interesting? Rather than saying, we'll just hand an episode over to The Mandalorian about two-thirds of the way through the season because, yeah, the Book of Boba Fett itself isn't going to be very good. Thirteen. Predictions. Now, there's really not a lot to say here because the episode really didn't advance Boba Fett's story all that much. We do hear that... Mando is going to go visit Grogu, and I imagine that's going to happen during episode six off screen, because that'll give Boba Fett and Fennec time to get whoever else they need to get together and then start in on their planning to take on the Pikes. But if they don't really have a lot to do, if they're not going to be recruiting anybody else, like a Cad Bane or anybody, then maybe we'll end up seeing Mando go to Grogu. But that doesn't feel quite right. It feels like season three of the Mandalorian stuff, because it seems like it might be challenging, difficult. There would be obstacles, issues when it comes to that. And we want to dwell in that space. We want to see where Grogu is learning and we want to see how he reacts to Mando showing up. And we want to see the handing over of the gift of the chainmail, And that just seems to chew up a lot of time. Maybe they'll give 
half or more of the next episode. And not that I would object, but it seems like they're going to go back to Boba Fett. Mando will be gone and then he'll show up in episode seven, maybe given that we saw in this episode, oh, hey, good timing. Like he knows how to make an entrance. Maybe he'll do that again in episode seven. But since he's being hired as muscle, it just seems like he would be there when things launch in episode seven would seem you would start the action at the end of episode six, concluded in the first half or a little bit after that in episode seven. And because it gives you some time to wrap up at the end and set everything else, everyone off to their various directions at that point. And again, these are short episodes, so there's not a lot that can be done, but it seems to me like the Grogu stuff with Mando, like the Mandalorian season three, again, more material for them that then you were going to fill in that gap and see Mando go see Grogu and start down his path of going to Mandalore to wash away the sin of taking off his helmet. Okay. So that is it for this week. I thank you again for tuning in. And uh, we only have a couple more of these things before the book of Boba Fett wraps up. And as always, reach out, send me an email, go to the website, b13podcast.com, and you can leave me a voicemail. Find me on Twitter, uh, b13pod. And uh, yeah, I'm enjoying this process of putting out these podcasts. I got to spend some time in the off season figuring out how to spread the word a little bit further, but always could use your help in that area. Anyway, we will talk again in the not so distant future. See you next week.